Welcome to Big Girl Poker Chat, hosted by Donna Blevins, the big girl of poker at six feet five inches tall. This is not your average poker podcast. Donna and her guests talk about poker in a way you've never heard before. Listen in and learn about how to play the game and how to win at life. Find show notes for this show and more great content on the blog at biggirlpoker.com. And now, Donna Blevins. Well, hello, this is Donna Blevins, and with me is Fossil Man, the 2004 World Series of Poker main event champion, Greg Raymer, and the winner of four Heartland Poker Tour titles in 2012. Wow, Greg, I am impressed. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on with me today. Sure. I mean, I've been doing a lot of poker training ever since winning the main event. Um, teaching people is something that I really enjoy. Um, if it was a career that paid very well, I'd have probably become a teacher. <laughs> but, um, huh? you know, it's it's a job that is, you know, underpaid in the society today. And uh, so I never went down that path. But it was something I always enjoyed doing, something I feel I'm good at. I uh, have taught for many years for the WSOP Academy and still do, but their business model doesn't necessarily fit well with, you know, smaller locations. You know, when you're in Las Vegas, L.A., Atlantic City, um, their business model fits well for locations like that. But Blackhawk, Colorado, you know, St. Louis, Missouri, Pensacola, Florida, you know, where there's maybe there's only one poker room there, or if there's multiple poker rooms, still it's not a, you know, a huge geographic area and so I wanted to reach those places as well so I started my fossil man poker training and it's a different business model how I set things up so that we can make these seminars happen in these locations well tell me about a day with you at one of your fossil man poker training sure typically this is an all-day seminar that costs three hundred dollars we start frequently at about 9 a.m. we do three hours of lecture take a lunch break, and then in the afternoon, I have co-instructors working with me, and we do four hours of live hand exercises. So the students sit at a poker table, an instructor is in the dealer box, we deal to them, they play as if it were a real tournament. There's nothing for them to actually win or lose in terms of money or prizes, uh -huh. but we do ask them to play seriously their best A game, because what's going to happen is when you fold your cards go on the rail instead of the muck. And at the end of the hand, I'm going to kind of go one player at a time and ask them to show me their cards, and then I'll critique their decisions. I will kind of say to them, you know, what I like and don't like about the decisions they made. I might ask all the students before someone turns over their cards, like, you know, what did you put him or her on? What range of hands do you think they were holding? Why do you think that? Uh, you know, given that, what should this opponent of theirs have done? You know, if that really was the range, then what would their appropriate, you know, should they have folded like they did? Should they have raised like they did? Should they have done something else? So get the players involved. And, and then also I'm then explaining, of course, my selection and, and why I would make it. So we don't play very many hands an hour, literally like six hands an hour, give uh -huh. or take. Uh -huh. But the point is to bring up again some of the stuff that we taught in the, in the morning, but now have it in the context of an actual hand. I love that. I love that model. I know when I first went to the uh, covered the WPT boot camps when they first started out, that was very similar to how they did, and I think that is the perfect model for training. Hands-on is absolutely one of the the best teachers. 
I know I use that actually in my poker therapy program that I work with the the traumatic brain injury veterans at the VA hospital in Tampa. And it's astonishing to me how poker has helped people with with a traumatic brain injury because that hands-on with them is is very good. It helps them to relearn some of the skills that they have have lost, math, decision-making, following directions, those sorts of things. But but that hands-on is always very, very good. Greg, I remember the first time that I met you in 2004, just after you won the World Series of Poker Main Event. And I'm not sure if you remember that or not, but I flew out to the bike in L.A. to cover the Legends of Poker for Poker Player Newspaper, Poker Player Magazine. I'm not sure which one it was. It was a reception in your honor. I walked up to you, stuck out my hand and said, I'm Donna, and you interrupted me and said, Donna, I know who you are. I read all your articles. And I was absolutely dumbfounded. Now, you may not remember this, but it's this, in my head, I had, I had been writing for beginning poker players since 1998, and after eight years of playing, I still considered myself a beginner. And I stood there with my mouth hanging open, and I said to you, why? Why do you read my stuff? Do you remember what you said? I don't remember what I said. I mean, I'm, I'm remembering much of this uh, um, <laughs> event, but I don't remember my response. You said to me something that has stuck in my mind and has positively affected my poker play since then. You said, because you remind me that I always need to get back to the basics, that I don't have to be fancy to win. And I I really want to thank you for that because that one phrase has stood in my head and has been with me since 2004. Thank you for that, Greg. Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad I could have such an impact. It's, it's funny, too, that it's, it is things like that, spur of the moment, that uh, actually, you know, seem to be like the, the stuff like that that kind of lasts. Mm-hmm. It's often spur of the moment rather than really, really planned out. I mean, my catchphrase, whenever I sign autographs and stuff, one of the first times anyone asked me for an autograph was before I won the main event, but I was chip leader with, you know, two or three tables to go. And someone were like on one of the you know the little fifteen minute bathroom breaks, and as I'm walking away from the table, someone's like, "Can I have your autograph?" And I'm like looking around, like you know who's behind me, kind of a thing. And then it's like, "Oh, he wants my autograph because I'm chip leader." And I'm like, "Wow!" And he's like, "Can you put good luck on there?" And I was my first thought was like, "No," because luck is not you know it's not real in the sense it's not a physical tangible thing. Um, for me, luck is just a convenient word to describe what's happened. So I could say, you know, oh, Donna, you got lucky in that hand, or you got unlucky. But that doesn't mean that I think that you have some measurable commodity that we call luck, and that you used it or, you know, failed to use it or anything like that. And so I was like, oh, I can't do that. I mean, I can't make you be lucky. Um, And then off the top of my head, I just wrote, play smart. Uh-huh. I was like, here, now that you can, you know, that you have power over. You you can, you know, learn more, train more, study more, control your emotions, all those things that will help you make better decisions, you know, that is to play smart. But you can't make yourself luckier. You know, when people say you make your own luck, really it's, you know, you're not making yourself lucky. You're making good decisions such that you don't need to get lucky or at least you don't need to get lucky as much to do well in a poker game. And I'm glad you mentioned the fact that those off-the-cuff 
thoughts and comments are, are what's important because I want everyone to know that what we're chatting about today has not been rehearsed because I wanted this to be spontaneous. And and I'm really glad. I want to thank you, Greg, for, for being willing to jump in here and be spontaneous with me today. Well, I could have treated this like, you know, a legal thing. When I was in law school, I remember we had, like, the state attorney general come give us a speech one day. And he was talking about how he had just done um, an appeal before the U.S. Supreme Court. And he was saying how, you know, you've only got a certain amount of time for the oral argument uh, in front of the nine justices. And you don't know what they're going to ask you. I mean, you're asked to give, you know, your own little prepared comments, arguing your side. But typically they just interrupt you over and over again and ask their questions. And you don't know what they're going to ask, but obviously you can make educated guesses. And he was saying that, like, oh, my team and I came up with, like, 3,000 different questions we thought we might get asked and what we would respond for each of them. And I was just like, are you insane? I mean, 3,000? And then he said, after the oral argument, we were talking to the lawyers for the other side, and they had done the same thing, only they'd come up with 10,000 questions. And, you know, so for all we know, I've been spending two weeks in private coming up with 3,000 questions you might ask me and rehearsing my answers. <laughs> well, I love that. I love that. Well, gosh, in, in that case, tell me how you first started playing poker, Greg. <laughs> you know, I don't even know, to be honest. I, when I was in college, I was in the Kappa Sigma fraternity at the University of Missouri at Rolla. And maybe three or four times a year, we would have a poker game. Someone would just decide, hey, I feel like playing poker. And he'd gather up some of us, and we'd go to someone's room and sit down and literally play with coins, with pocket change, you know, nickels, dimes, and quarters. And and this was the stereotype, you know, follow the queen, anaconda, night baseball, silly home game stuff. And I know that I knew the rules. I mean, I already knew, you know, like, here's how you play seven-card stud. Here's how you play five-card draw. Uh, we actually didn't know any flop games, so we didn't have any Hold'em or Omaha in the repertoire. So I learned those somewhere as a teenager or a child, but I do not recall where. Um, and, of course, we were all horrible players in that fraternity game. And I would, you know, I enjoyed it, though. And when I was in grad school and law school, Again, three or four times a year, I'd like call up some buddies and say, hey, you guys want to come over? We'll play a poker game at my apartment. And it would still be the nickels, dimes, and quarters and lots of silly games. Finally, when I was working as an attorney, um, I had been a blackjack card counter on the side when I was going to school at the University of Minnesota. And when I got my first job as an attorney, it was in Chicago. But the blackjack games on the riverboats were not really beatable for one person, you know, not doing a team approach. Uh-huh. And I was looking, you know, someone mentioned like, oh, I hear that there's these like charity night casinos and they do blackjack. So I went to see uh, what those games were like. And the state law for charity gaming in Illinois, you could only bet $10. So it was impossible for me to, you know, be a card counter, spread my bet and make, you know, more than like $4 an hour. So obviously not worth my time. But they also had poker games. So since I was there anyways, I was like, oh, well, you know, I always had fun with my buddies. So I'm playing 3-6 Limit Hold'em, and this is a game, of course, where everyone's horrible, um, you know, by certainly by modern standards. But to me, it was just like, wow, I mean, there's so many other talking about this and that, and, 
you know, pot odds and stuff that I'd never heard of. And, and it got me real interested in it. And so I went to a used bookstore. They had three books on poker. I bought them all. We had Poker According to Maverick, a little paperback book written as if by Brett Maverick of the TV show and movie fame. I know uh, the book. Mm -hmm. uh, the Education of a Poker Player by Herbert O. Yardley, which is a fun book. Again, the advice, I think the Maverick book might have been, like, basically pirated the <laughs> Herbert Yardley book. <laughs> you know, it was basically just weak, tight advice. Just, like, play super tight, and if you don't have a really strong hand, just fold. And, of course, when you're playing against people that are just wanting to have fun and gamble it up, that's a perfectly good way to win. Um, but the Yardley book is good just because the guy was like a code breaker in World War II, and so he has stories of real-life incidents interspersed amongst the poker advice. So he'll tell you some story about how he's playing in a stud game, you know, in Europe during the Cold War or something like that, and then that will segue into the advice on how to correctly play seven-card stud. But it's a, it's a fun little read. But the third book, and I was lucky that was here in that in that bookstore, was The Theory of Poker by David Sklansky. Uh -huh. And since I'm a very mathematical-minded person, that was just a great book for me. And to this day, if people ask me to recommend a book, I'm like, if I'm going to recommend one book, that's the one. Because it doesn't say, like, oh, here's hands you should play from this position or whatever in Hold'em. He just discusses concepts. Here are these concepts that will drive all your poker decisions. And if you really understand these concepts, you'll be able to figure out for yourself things like starting hand selection and so on. So it's still a great book and, and one that every serious player should reread every now and then. And I just worked my way up over the years. Well, you know, you talking about you being a, a, a patent attorney. Yes. Uh, how, you know, I believe that poker mirrors life, and you were talking about the one the one book that was giving a life instance incident and then how that relates to poker. I mean, I've spent the last 15 years getting poker lessons every time I turn around. Something happens in life, and I say, oh, my goodness, that's a poker lesson. And how did being a patent attorney benefit you at the poker table? I don't think it did, to be honest. But I do think that being a poker player benefited me a lot as a patent attorney. Oh, how interesting. Go on. I mean, I think that people who really think things through carefully um, and poker would be one way to learn some of these lessons. Basically, there's a lot more luck in everyday life than people understand. When we look at, like, successful businessmen, successful athletes, you know, successes of any sort, and we look at people who don't seem successful to us, people tend to believe and want to believe that everyone's getting what they deserve. In other words, that person is not a success because they didn't try hard or they're just genetically disadvantaged that they're not that smart or whatever. But the truth is that there's just a ton of luck. I mean, you know, I'm not saying Bill Gates isn't a smart guy and a good businessman and all that, but he was one of the luckiest people in the world to become as successful as he has. Now, if he was lacking in, in intelligence and drive and didn't have a good work ethic and all that stuff, then no matter how lucky he was, he was never going to reach the level he's at. So it required both. But there are, certainly in this world, a million people who are just as smart, just as hardworking, but just didn't have the right set of circumstances come to them. 
And so they have not become multi-billionaires. And I think what poker teaches, I mean, at least what it has taught me, is that all you can do is focus on making really good decisions. And then whatever happens after that is a lot. And, of course, it's an ongoing process. You don't just make a decision once and then that's it. It's done. It's over. You know, it's a continuous process of reevaluating decisions. And, of course, new issues are always coming up and you have to make new decisions. So it's not, you know, something that's just, okay, I, I, I put in the effort once and now let's spin the wheel and see if I win. It is ongoing. But all you should be focused on in every aspect of life, um, you know, business, you know, personal relationships, romantic relationships, um, all that stuff is what's the smartest decision for me to make. I agree with you 100%. And especially, you know, today there's so much change in in the 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 makeup of the poker players. Now, you have been so successful. I mean, if you look at your stats over the past 10 years, you've been successful continually. I mean, you were one of the few people who won a main event championship of the World Series and turned around the next year and finished really high in the field. And that really showed everybody that you were not a flash in the pan. And you have really kept kept coming strong. What what do you attribute? Let's look at, at your your four Heartland Poker Tour championships. What do you attribute that to? What are you doing that you can share with our listeners that helped you to be such a consistently strong poker player? Well, interestingly enough, it's really just the same thing I, I just said. Just focus on making good decisions. I mean, at the poker table, even though that's a complex process, it's much less complicated than life decisions. But the reason I've done so well on the Heartland Poker Tour is the combination of skill and luck. Um, let's say the average field size for those tournaments was 200 players. The average player has one chance in 200 of winning the tournament. If you're twice as good as average, you have one chance in 100. Now, if you're twice as good as average, then you're making money as you enter those tournaments in the long run. I mean, obviously not each individual event. So if you were to all of a sudden win three in a row, well, what that means is is you had like a die with 100 sides and you rolled it and it came up one. And then it did it again and again. And that's very lucky. But it didn't take as much luck as the average player in that tournament because he had a 200-sided die. So he needed eight times as much luck to win those three tournaments in a row. And, and, and again, it would be even more so if you were three times better than average, you know, then it's 27 times more likely that you could do three in a row. But it's still a real long shot. Even if we had someone who was 10 times better than average, and there is no such person, in my opinion, who's that much better. But even if they were, that's still one chance in 20, and they have to do one out of 20 three times in a row. So it is still luck. But skill changed how much luck you needed. Uh -huh. And if you're a really, if you're a really, you know, inexperienced player, if you're an amateur beginner and you don't have much poker knowledge, well, now each event is not one in two hundred; it's you know one in four hundred, one in a thousand, something like that. So then it would require massively more luck for you to win three in a row. 
Well, now, the theme of, of this series of talks is how the game of poker is evolving and how you must change your game to keep up with, with those changes or else go broke. You know, how do you see the game today as different from when you won the your championship in 2004? Players are tremendously more knowledgeable. They're much, much better players. Um, what I've been saying for the last year or two is that if we went to a typical tournament today, you know, let's pick something that has clear counterparts in history. A $1,500 No Limit Hold'em tournament today and a 1500 No Limit Hold'em tournament 10 years ago, both of them at the World Series of Poker. If we could come up with a little probe that you could measure someone's skill level on an absolute scale, uh-huh. and we went around and measured everyone's skill level at the start of this $1,500 bracelet event this summer, and we found out what's the average skill level of the second worst person at each table. So someone who has, he's only better than one of his nine opponents, and the other eight are better than him. And we got that average skill level. And we found that average player at that, you know, that bottom, second from the bottom, put him back in time 10 years and entered him into the $1,500 bracelet event. He'd probably be about the second best player at his table. Well, with that said, what do poker players have to do today to keep up with how good players are at the table? Well, basically, you have to be better yourself. Uh, poker is like everything. It's an ongoing skill. Um, you don't see a PGA Tour pro, you know, who's been a professional golfer now at the highest level for 10 or 20 years, not continue training. They still have swing coaches and mindset coaches and, you know, physical therapists for that stuff. But they are always trying to get better. Even if they could realistically say, hey, I'm old enough right now, I'm probably not going to get better. But by trying to get better, they can at least maintain the level they're at. And, of course, there is some chance that they might figure out something and actually become a better player than they were last year. But just that constant effort to improve, if it doesn't help you improve, at least it will keep you from getting worse. So if someone, you know, says to me, you know, like we're talking about one of my, my training seminars, and they're like, oh, I, I pretty much know, you know, most everything you could know about No Limit Hold'em, so I don't need to go. Well, first of all, I know they're completely wrong. Because um, the people who really know the most are the first to admit that there's still a lot for them to learn. So this person is ignorant enough that they don't know what they don't know. Uh-huh. Um, but secondly, even if they really were, a great player like hey I play here every day as a professional in this poker room and there's just no doubt that I'm better than everyone else who I see in this poker room well that doesn't mean you can't learn more just because you are one of the best doesn't mean there isn't more for you to learn more for you to understand ways for you to improve your game the main reason that golf pro when he's in his 40s is unlikely to improve is just the physical part you know, he's put stress and strain on his joints, you know, this, you know, relatively violent act of, you know, starting from zero and trying to generate all this speed, you know, in just a fraction of a second, that puts a lot of strain on his joints. So, you know, he's probably got back problems and knee problems and hip problems and all that stuff. Those are the things that really would prevent him from improving, not the stuff that's going on in his head. Uh-huh. But since poker is entirely in your head, there is no physical limitation 
to keep you from improving at any age. So the person who thinks he can't improve, well, the only reason that that is correct is because he's got his mind closed and isn't paying any attention. You know, and I agree with you 100% because when I was in real estate, when my husband and I had a real estate office, I was always studying. We were both always studying anything about the industry. And when we closed our office after 20 years and went on to actually came into the poker industry, we had over 250 home study courses about real estate, everything to do with real estate. And the shortest one was, I think, a, a six-hour audio course. Some of them had 20, 25 hours of audio. And I had, I had listened to every one of them multiple times. Because every time, you know, I'll, I'll pick up the worst poker book in the world and read it because I'll, I'll figure out something. Something will, it, it will trigger something. It will trigger a learning experience. And I love to go to poker. I love to go to other people's poker seminars. If we find ourselves in the same location, I'd love to come to yours. You know, I mean, I would, uh, I'll sit there and just eat it up because I'll learn something every time I'm in a, 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 a training session. I think that's what people need to do is they need to realize it is a constant, it's constant education in relationship to their game. And when they think that they're there, <laughs> I think that's the time they need to go get the books out and go go find somebody to give them a hand. Well, the good news is that, you know, a lot of the people at my seminars, they're there because they've effectively won the seat. The, mm -hmm. the casino where I'm holding the event has given it away. So, for example, here at Golden Gates, they've had 32 preliminary events leading up to their main if you won any of those 32 events, you won a seat to the seminar. Mm -hmm. And so those people obviously didn't make a conscious decision of, I am going to attend Greg's seminar. Um, but now that they've got it for free, you know, of course, they're probably going to attend if they can. And those include some of those people who are like, oh, I've got nothing to learn. I know it all. Mm -hmm. One of the most common compliments I get at the end of my seminars is something along the lines of, Man, I really didn't think you were going to be able to teach me anything today, but I learned a lot. Uh -huh. And and they never mean that as a personal insult. Like, well, if it was Joe Hashem, I would have expected to learn stuff, but not from you, Greg Raymer. <laughs> they they mean it's like whoever was teaching this, I didn't think you were going to be able to teach me anything. And then uh -huh. they're like, man, you know, I really did learn a lot. Thank you, you know. And and that's actually the hardest kind of the the, the big hump for me in the business of doing these seminars is making the players understand that, no, this really will, you will find this not only enjoyable, but valuable. If you pay 300 and you come put in the effort for the day, you know, stay focused, pay attention, really try to think about this stuff and, you know, how you can apply it. I, I can almost guarantee that your results are going to be $300 better, if not, you know, 3000 or or more better than for not attending. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. Any training, and I know yours, are absolutely priceless. From your standpoint, what, can, what tips can you give poker players for playing against the hyper-aggressive players that, that, that we find at the poker table today? And, and that I really need, I, I need some coaching from you myself because I do have some challenges with the hyper-aggressive player. I'm pretty good at dealing with them, but tell me what I can do. Well, one of the main things you can do is try to avoid situations where you're investing money into a pot, you know, putting chips into a pot, where you might not continue to the end. 
In other words, let's say that this hyper-aggressive player has raised your blind and you decided to defend. Well, if you check fold the flop because you missed, there's, you know, that's obviously fine. Um, you know, sometimes obviously it could be correct to make a play at them without having a hand, without having hit the flop. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. But the big mistake I see is something like this person has defended their blind with, let's give a hypothetical, they have jack-10 suited. And now the flop comes king-10-3 rainbow. They check, the hyper-aggressive player bets. Yeah, they know there's a good chance they have the best hand. So they decide to call. And then uh, what looks like a harmless card hits the turn, and they check and call again. And now another theoretically harmless card hits the river, and they check, and now the hyper-aggressive player makes another, you know, normal-sized bet. But, of course, by now the pot's so big that that is a very big bet. Now they finally get scared and fold. Like, wow, I don't would he really do this, you know, on a bluff over and over again? Well, he certainly might because he knows that he's run into more than one opponent like you who will call once or twice and then give up if he continues to apply the pressure. Well, I'm not much for checking and calling. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, but that's one strategy that can work really well. If the player is truly just massively aggressive, mm-hmm. really doesn't have a slow gear, mm-hmm. then that's one of the best things to do with a lot of your hands, you know, a lot of your medium-strength hands. Okay. You just, you know, and that would be the good example. King-10, three, rainbow, and you have jack-10. If you're not going to call him down, you probably don't want to call the flop. Now, that's assuming a player who, when you just check call, is going to continue to fire, whether he has a hand or not. You know, if he's a good enough player, he might realize, oh, you're calling me down, I'm giving up. Mm-hmm. You know, but, and then that means if he's the kind of guy who's capable of that, who will realize, you know, oh, I think Donna's calling me down, I'll give up. But hey, when I actually do have that king or another really good hand, I will continue firing and let her pay me off. So there's no, you know, formula for success that you can just always apply it every time indiscriminately and it will always work. But if you have some of those hyper-aggressive players that just tend to be super aggressive, you know, and every time you show weakness, they're betting and raising, don't call the first one or two times just to fold on the on the river. Sure. I mean, if the scariest card in the deck comes off, you know, if it's king, ten, three with two hearts, and the river is the ace of hearts, you know, now it might be justified to give up. Because you're like, okay, unless he was bluffing me with nothing the whole way, he got there. He hit his ace for a bigger pair, he made his straight, he made his flush. You know, sometimes you might be making the right decision to change your mind and give up on calling him down. Um, but the truth is, if he's really at all a smart, hyper-aggressive player, then he knows that if there was any chance to get you to fold the river, this was the card. If this mm-hmm. card didn't make you because you made the flush or the straight, then this is the card that it's worthwhile for me to try to bluff one more time because it's the scariest card possible if it didn't actually hit you. So that's one thing is basically give this super-aggressive player the rope to hang himself. Okay. Um, now, when the ch- stacks aren't so deep, you know, when there's a serious possibility of being all in pre-flop, the main key here 
is to make sure that if there's going to be an all-in bet, it's you doing it. Absolutely. So if you have a stack size of, let's say, 12 to 25 big blinds, that's the stack size where you're going to be re-raising all-in preflop. So the super aggressive player, you know, he open raises for his two and a half times the big blind bet. If you have a good enough hand or if you just realize that, hey, I think he's, you know, like six people folded and now it's on him in late position, he's going to raise here with every single possible hand he could be holding. Well, if you go all in for, let's say, 20 big blinds, he's going to have to fold the vast majority of the time. I mean, now he's a maniac who just came to gamble. You know, so he's a hyper-aggressive maniac. That's different. That guy will just kind of say, okay, whatever, I call because... I have eight, seven of diamonds, and, and that's a hand that might get lucky. And now you're kind of like, oh, shoot, you know, I shoved all in with six, five of diamonds. <laughs> because I figured that way that if he did have a good hand like Ace King and called me, I'd have two live cards and maximum <laughs> chance of kind of sucking out. And now I'm actually behind because I'm all in with six high against eight high. Um, but if this guy is a hyper-aggressive player but, you know, has a brain, He's not a dumb poker player. He's just a smart poker player who has chosen a very aggressive style. Then he's not going to call you there with the 8-7 of diamonds or the jack-10 or, or even the ace-5 or anything like that. If he was really raising originally with any two cards, he's folding 80 to 90% of those hands when you go all in because this is too much for him to call when he knows he's probably behind. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that you mentioned here is really important. You're saying within that 12 to 25 big blind stack size, I believe that poker players make a huge mistake when they allow their stack size to get down to the point where they can't hurt somebody else. It has to be significant enough. You've got to make those stands sooner and earlier, not later, because then it, then you just then you're just a, you're just in a position where you don't where you you're too weak. So I believe that's really important to take away from here is is that 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 twelve to twenty five big blind re re raise all in pre flop depending on the situation. I know that I I did that particular scenario you're talking about the the smart player is not going to call you you know that super aggressive player I had a super aggressive player to my to my right who kept pushing me off kept pushing me out of the hands and. And I was getting low, and I said, I'm, I'm going to do something. And he actually, I was the big blind, and he actually limped in on the small blind. Everybody else folded. And I, I looked down, and I had a 10-3, and I said, you know, this player's going to, I'm, you know, he's got to get out of here. The, the blinds were so big at the time. And I pushed all in, and he called. He had an ace-queen, and I had the 10-3, and I said, oh, my God, I was so embarrassed to turn it over. But, you know, the poker gods were looking out for me because, you know, 10-10-3 came on the flop. <laughs> you know? Well, the thing is, even if someone wanted to say to you, Donna, your play was wrong and here's my reasoning, whether they're correct or not, whenever you're making an aggressive play, when you're making the big bet or the raise, that is a big enough better raise that the opponent might fold, mm -hmm. it can never be a horrible play. In other words, it might be a mistake. You know, if I was sitting there at the table and I knew what I'd seen this player do and so on, maybe my opinion would have been, oh, he wouldn't limp here with a weak hand. He would only limp with a strong hand. He would raise or fold his weak hands.
So depending, you know, if that was the, what I had seen, then I maybe would say, oh, I don't like your shove, Donna, because I don't think you have enough fold equity. But whether that's correct or not, your shove could never be horrible because you gave him a chance to fold. When you call, when you fold, it can potentially be a huge mistake. Uh -huh. When you raise or bet, and it's obvious that the opponent cannot fold, it might be a huge mistake. But whenever you're making the aggressive play and it's for enough chips that they might fold, even if it's a mistake, it can't be a big mistake. I mean, it's either correct or it's, you know, a smaller mistake. I, I so that's what I'm, one of the things you teach your students, like, if you really can't make up your mind what to do, then pick the aggressive play. If you really just can't figure out which one's better than the other, then go for the aggressive one. I love it. I, I, I agree with that 100%. It, 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 do you have any guidelines for game selection? I know that you're focusing on tournament play. but, but Well, that's tough. That's a tough one because that's so... I mean, the, the truth is, you know, you need to be looking at the players at every table. I mean, if if you're someone who plays... like The most common cash game out there is probably 1-2 no limit hold'em nowadays. Mm-hmm. And if you go to a lot of poker rooms, they'll have several tables where that's the game being played. But if you don't know these people, if you're not a regular, then you really can't judge which table is a better game than the other unless you stand there and watch it for quite a while. So it's it's tough to have that really good game selection. But if you have been able to observe or if you're a regular and you know a lot of these people and, you know, there's two tables of this game going, and, and you're on table three, but the game next to you on table four is a better game, then, yeah, you absolutely put your name on the list to, to change. Ask the floor man, I want to change to, to the other table um, if they get a seat open. Uh, but it, it's tough. Um, the, I think the big mistake that people make in game selection is let's say that you are someone who would normally play as high as 10, 20, no limit hold'em and you go to your poker room and they have a 10-20 no limit game but they also have a 5-10 and a 2-5 and then even smaller well a lot of people will just say like I'm a 10-20 player and so they go to the 10-20 game but it might be a really tough game today and so even if they're still a good player and they're going to win maybe their win rate is going to be $25 an hour or $50 an hour but if they looked over at the 5-10 table you know, they're playing for half the stakes, but maybe that table has a lot of less experienced, weaker players. So instead of playing this bigger game where he's going to win $25 an hour plus or minus 500 an hour, he could play the 510 game and maybe he could make $40 an hour plus or minus 300 an hour or something like that. In other words, he'd have a higher hourly win and a lower variance, which are both good things, but the ego says, Hey, I'm a 10-20 player, uh -huh. and there'll be occasions where the 10-20, you know, that 10-20 game might be so tough that you can, you know, you're only going to really average like ten dollars an hour. So, like, go play two-five, where you can make twenty or thirty. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for that because that's really smart. Because I think ego is one of the things that that beats poker players more than anything else it, and it is it is mindset and let's let's finish tonight with with my favorite which has which has to do with mindset because you know i'm a poker mindset coach and yep. and that is that is what i focus on is is that mind what do, that mindset what do you think 
how do you think mindset plays in relationship to winning at the poker table? Well, basically, if you don't have your appropriate mindset in place, you just aren't going to be able to make those smartest decisions that you're capable of making. So given whatever your current knowledge and experience level is, that's going to be kind of the upper limit on how intelligently you can play the game. But if you're in a bad mood, you're on tilt or whatever else, or even just you haven't gotten enough sleep lately or you're stressed out from stuff in your personal life or your, or your real job, then because of those capacities in your mindset, instead of being able to play up to 100% of your skill level, you're going to be capped out somewhere much lower down. And people have a hard time recognizing that fact. Most of us are not very good at reading ourselves, so to speak. Um, and ego is one of the main reasons. And even if I'm better than that at, than the average poker player, I'm sure I still have massive fail in that area. Uh, but it's an area where most human beings, you know, have epic fail all the time. And not just for poker, but for other activities. You know, it's the same thing, again, in personal life, business life, or other hobbies that they participate in that they just don't recognize or won't admit when things aren't optimal and maybe this should change their decision making. And you know, maybe this isn't the right day to call on that client because you're kind of pissed off because you had a fight with your spouse and now you might say something snippy to that client and lose his business. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Or. You know, it, it's amazing how people leave work and they come to the poker table after being in traffic and they're just absolutely on tilt. And th they bring that energy with them to the table, that shifting energy. We're constantly dealing with our mindset and our shifting of our energy. And I believe it's really important to recognize at any one particular point, where are we? What am I thinking? What, what, is, my, what is in my mindset right now? And the moment that we actually ask ourselves, you know, what am I thinking? That's the moment that we actually do come back, come back to the present where we can look at what we're thinking and we do have an opportunity to shift that mindset. Well, Greg Raymer, I want to thank you for being with me today. I'm just honored to have you on Donna Blevins Poker Chats. Let me give it a name today. Great. <laughs> Sounds good. And I want to invite everyone to, to visit Greg's training site, fossilmanpokertraining.com. And um, anytime you want to contact him, tell him Donna Blevins sent you. And I want to sign off, off for tonight. This is Donna Blevins, your Poker Mindset Coach and Dean of PokerMindsetAcademy.com. And I want you to remember my motto. If you can't raise, don't call. It's a good night. Good night.